Kia ora and welcome to episode five of A Sound of Life. So glad you could join us. It's uh, been some time since episode four with Raylan Castle, which we actually launched in December 2022, nearly a year ago now. It turns out there's quite a bit more to producing these podcasts, let alone ensuring that they stay regular. So a big learning there for me and a, a number of things off my plate now. So back at it again, recording episode five. And for those of you who did listen to episode four and, and would re- recommend it to others if there wasn't John's annoying 16-minute preamble, I have good news. I have re-released that episode as episode 4.5 in a very Harry Potter-type way with just a tiny intro, I promise, and then the rest is Raylene and I having a good old chat about all things sport, her career, and views on imposter syndrome, amongst other things. And that discussion around imposter syndrome, absolutely loved. And there's a new phrase there which I think uh, we could all do well to consider taking on instead of this rather ominous uh, imposter syndrome phrase that we, we generally refer to when we're talking about people feeling like they really shouldn't be in the room in a new role or all things, really. Which bring me, uh, brings me to today's episode and my guest, Sean Quincy, CEO and founder of Symphony, uh, which we'll learn more about as we chat. Um, Sean's a multi-exit sounder, serial founder, epic long-distance rower and an all-round good fella. It's uh, such a pleasure and a privilege to have Sean join me for the relaunch of A Sound of Life. He's uh, a very humble chap given his achievements in work and adventure. And I just learn about another facet of success that he's had along the way and great stories every time we chat. So we cover a lot of ground in just over an hour on this podcast, starting with an incredible recap of his highs and lows around his Trans-Tasman adventure and move on to the parallels around that to the ups and downs of startup life. So I hope you find inspiration and information from listening to our chat. I certainly did. Thanks to our sponsor, Territory 3, Kiwi Landing Pad Reimagined, which is going through another reimagination of which this podcast experiment is part. Uh, More on that later. But if you do like what you hear, uh, please do let others know. And like uh, A Sound of Life on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And if you're really feeling generous, drop us a comment or feedback to me directly, john at territory3.community. So thanks very much for listening and on to the show with Sean Quincy. Kia ora katoa, this is John and I'm with Sean Quincy. John, good to be here. Thanks for having me. We are sitting in the Ice House. Thank you, Simon and the Ice House team for lending us the London room. We've taken all the pens and Whatever stuff that we can fit in our bags, and we're ready to <laughs> freeze record. I'm really excited about this, mate, because um, it is uh, the resurgence of a thing I started in December last year. Awesome. Um, so, uh, Sound of Life, that's what you're on. I will record a brief introduction separately, not the 16 minutes I did last time of just complete waffle, having listened to it uh, when we interviewed Raylan Castle. Raylene, I'm sorry. Um, we wasted 16 minutes of your life there. I apologise for that. <laughs> um, but yeah, Sound of Life, what it's about. Sound of, you know, it, it, it stands for Serial Founder. And that was referring to me, but I'm actually in the presence of a Serial Founder as well today, which is bloody cool. 
So welcome, Sean. For those of you listening from further afield in New Zealand, uh, many of you in our Territory 3 ecosystem will know Sean very, very well. Um, and I'm going to get him to tell us a little bit about himself. But I do have a very um, cool biography here, which will be available on the podcast episode. Um, and there's some key points here. And, mate, the thing, I think the first time I met you was in the Kiwi Landing Pair when you had... There's this guy who never stopped smiling in the corner and he's from this company I've never heard of called Debit Success. Yes, yeah. And it didn't right. sound like a startup to me. It sounded like quite a big company. Yeah, well, it was. Yeah, it was a great, successful company and that was awesome. So we'll dig into that. And so that's where we met and, um, you yeah, know, a lot of successes and uh, a lot of stories and a few beers um, since then. So it's probably good to have you here. The objective of this is really just to have chat. Great. It's run and gun style, as I said to you, because I can't be bothered editing it. Yeah. And, um, you know, we've, we've definitely had to talk about some topics we, we want to hit, but I'm going to hand over to you and just, um, you know, who is Sean Quincy? <laughs> awesome. Well, look, thanks for having me. It's uh, one of my biggest passions is sharing founder stories and the ups and the downs and hoping that a little bit of that knowledge filtrates through to some other people and some of it will be helpful and some of it will be totally useless, but, you know, hopefully people people can. Um, look, so uh, Sean, Sean Quincy, who's that? Um uh, First job as is, is a dad and, and husband. I, uh, I love my little kids and love being a family man. Um, I've got a, a seven and nine year old, Mac and Charlie, and they um, certainly bring a whole lot of balance to my life, which is which is awesome. Cool. Where I, I suppose, my background is um, first ever job was selling radio advertising. Actually, sort of here's a phone book. Look it up. Look up your your customers and go sell them some um, some radio. And I basically had a um, small gig. Up in Oriwa selling Times FM radio slots. And terribly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was absolutely shit. Um, no, it was a disaster. I had an awesome boss, a lady, Anna McGovern. She was she was fantastic. Um, but six like massive failure at selling radio advertising and um and basically learnt uh, I suppose how to sell though. And really one of the biggest challenges I had was the area I sold to couldn't get our radio frequency. Oh my and so I was door knocking uh, all through Kumia and they didn't really know who Times FM was and we couldn't get Times FM. Um, and so what we went out and did is I went and bought them a whole lot of radios <laughs> and um, bought them a whole lot of booster antennas to put on top of their shops. Um, and I was like, well, you will be able to hear it and that you can leave it in the shop and it'll be fantastic. And we'll give you some, some free advertising so you can, um, yeah, really start hearing how powerful our radio station is and how it can drive audience from over, over into the Kimia stores and which I'm pretty sure most of them thought was bullshit, but they got their free radio. So they were happy. I was going say your cost of sale must have been quite high. <laughs> <laughs> it totally was. Um, and look, I, I, um, we slowly got there, but. What that sort of ended up evolving into, which was probably my first entrepreneurial gig, was I realised um, I couldn't sell them radio advertising. They were never going to buy it. And so what I did is I went and bought uh, 5,000 takeaway coffee cups and put Times FM on the outside of those cups. And then I put those cups into all the coffee shops um, for free around the Kumiu area. And I just paid for that. And I probably was a student loan at the time. <laughs> and I would say, and... Then all the um, businesses in local area started calling and saying, what's this Times FM? How do we get on Times FM? And I was like, well, this is more of a thing than Times FM. Um, so what can I do here? And so I went to BMW and said, well, can you give me 15000 bucks and I'll print 30000 takeaway coffee cups and I'll put them into all the local cafes in the Kumia area. And then they paid me and they did that. And so that was my first ever gig. <laughs> really my first How ever. Old were you then? 
Uh, I was 20 then. And, um, and so getting $15,000 from BMW was well, pretty spectacular for me at that particular time. And um, what I sort of did at that particular time is having the structure of radio advertising my head about having particular areas and the way you sell and marketing of advertising i went and signed up the cafes for as exclusive distribution points for that product which was branded takeaway coffee cups but um the cafes loved it because they got free takeaway coffee cups and um and then um i could go and sell space on those cups to local businesses or to anything else and then ended up building that business into about 100k a year of revenue um, then I sold it. Um, <laughs> so I sold it to a, a company from Melbourne who was an outdoor branding company um, at 21 because they offered me a fairly good chunk of cash and that was sort of cleared up a little bit for me and right. it was pretty exciting. Um, and uh, that gave me enough money to put a deposit down on my ocean rowing boat. <laughs> ah, now I wonder how we're going to see going this because <laughs> yeah. I, I have to say before you go into this phase of your life that um, – it just never constantly. It never. It never ceases to amaze me um, the humility of. Okay. okay. Yes. Because I went to a dinner the other night. There's only four of us at it. It was a few months ago now. But uh, I turned up early, and uh, the chap who invited me told me who else was coming, and I thought, great, Sean's coming. And I said, you know, what an amazing bloke. He's had, he's had some achievements in his life, and he mentions this one you're about to. And this guy said, oh. I never realised that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so, yeah. Um, tell us, uh, tell us that story, um, and and also, you know, it's a useful example, I guess, uh, probably driven by New Zealand flight prices. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, these days, as soon I've thought about rowing the Tasman again, but, uh, <laughs> but but look, the, um, in 2010, I, I rode the Tasman Sea solo from Coffs Harbour and crash landed on 90 Mile Beach. At, Took me 54 days, and um, it was a, a, a massive adventure. And um, you know, I was very lucky to have, to have made it. Um, the the genesis behind the why is my dad was the first person to row the Tasman Sea back in 1977. He uh, left from Hokianga Harbour and rowed for 63 days by himself in this little boat called called a Yorkshire Dory. Carried all of his own water and. Um, Crash landed on a beach called Marcus Beach, just south of uh, Noosa. What's the what's the crash in front of the landed? It's there's obviously <laughs> well, it's quite hard to to row gently onto a surf beach. So oh. sort of um, he flipped. And the same thing happened to me. I had to jump out and swim in. Oh. Um, Dad had to jump out and swim in just because the the boats are so heavy and big and they're so underpowered with two little oars. You you don't you can't really control the the direction um as you know if you're on a wave that wave's in control so wind, technically speaking you nearly rode the tent yeah yeah exactly 100 percent. yeah there's actually you know it's still up for grabs oh, sorry um, i'm to fight it yeah. that's an awesome achievement <laughs> oh it was um a, a big adventure and i still you know it's still um amazes me there's been 12 failed attempts to row the testament um and you know, Dad is still the only person to road from New Zealand to Australia solo, and I'm still the only person to road from Australia to New Zealand solo. So, um, that's to me, that's really cool to share that with Dad, and uh, so I quite like that as our our, our little thing. Um, and but again, it was a, a a massive challenge for me that was way harder than I ever thought. Um, and a story I always sort of tell is is on day four, um, I was sitting there just crying on the boat because I was like, shit, this is. 
this is 10 times higher than I ever thought. I've rowed for four days, and the first four days are kind of very dangerous because you're in the shipping lanes, and so you, and you, you've got no real proper light. You're very low to the water, so the ships can't see you, so you're going to get mowed over unless you're really careful. And so you row as hard as you can for four days, and so I was exhausted, and then I realised this is I never I'm never going to know when this is going to end. I don't know what's coming. Um, I'm totally out of control here. This is uh, really really hard, and I don't know if I actually want to do it. Um, and I thought, well, I could set the boat on fire because <laughs> I was like, I had a life raft and I had a, a, a like a Primus cooker, and I was like, you know what, fuck it, I can set this boat on fire, and I'll still get a good story, and I'll probably still be able to pay some of my debt, and and we're we're on the way. And this is day four, yeah, day four, and my fruit cake had run out that my 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 awesome wife had made, and um and so you know shit it in the fan, and so I was sitting there going, what can I do? Set the boat on fire, and then I looked at all the names of the people who had given me a little bit of money on the boat, and uh, and some had been giving me twenty bucks, some had given me five thousand dollars, just all these people that had backed me and, yeah. and believed in me, and said, "Here's an opportunity." And I sat back and I thought, "Well, actually, Sean, you're the only person in the world that's been given the chance to row the Tasman Sea solo by yourself today. You're the only person currently doing it." Um, if you weren't here doing it, what would you be doing? And there'd be there'd be someone else probably taking your spot. And do you want someone else to take your spot? And it really shifted the way I approached pressure. Um, from that point onwards, was pressure is a real privilege. Um, and going into challenging situations, it's always good to remind yourself. I think what well, this certainly for me is to well, if I wasn't here, where would I be? And nine times out of ten, I think most of us kind of want to be where we are but we don't acknowledge it <laughs> and, and, and then we reflect on it as a hard or stressful situation you go actually every choice leading to this i've made or, or, or hopefully most of the times um and and i'm here and that kind of really hit me through the rest of the trip to go well yeah it's really hard but this is this could be a bit of your life's work this could be your moment and and what a cool thing and so look at it like that and be happy about it, it still means things got really really hard um but I, I use that quite a lot now, sort of with businesses and any stressful moment. I'm like, wow, well, okay, how can we turn this into a good? Somebody said once, well, I mean, it's a scientific <laughs> thing. Pressure makes diamonds, right? Yeah, well, hopefully, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's certainly uh, if we can respond in the right way. Yes, yeah, absolutely. We're going to come back to that thing quite a few times, I think, because we are going to take on the founder sort of journey and your thoughts around that as well. But you know. Back to this minor sort of uh, Trans Tasman <laughs> Yes. Why hasn't anybody else done it? Well, I think it's uh, it's a big undertaking, right? And so, and it's a big um, uh, it's a big challenge, and it's scary, and it's pretty dangerous. What um, was the prep? What how many? You know, we're having weeks. Oh, two years of planning, really. Right. Um, two years of planning, but I built the boat myself. Um, I copied a, a design from the Atlantic Ocean Run boats. Um, You've really got to be willing and uh, to give up a big chunk of your life to, yeah. to go for it. Um, doesn't pay very well. In fact, it can cost you a lot of money too. Um, it's it's one of these strange things, I suppose, which I don't know, some adventurers or founders will have. You know, the challenge is exciting of completing it. Um, and I suppose I had the extra motivation of matching my dad's accomplishment, yeah. and and which was an, another driver which many other people wouldn't have, and so. To me, that was a bit of a gift, and that dad gave me a you know set of mark, and um, and one of the main motivators I think was if someone else had rode the Tasman from New Zealand to Australia and was the first, I just I would regret that for the rest of my life, and that was the biggest moment I had. Probably when I was, I was you know, first thinking of, I was like, wow, if someone else does that, I'm going to be pissed, 
and that will, to me I'll regret that for the rest of my life and so from that point I had to had to go and do it and so whether other people have that motivation or whether they want to be faster than than out what we did it in I'm not sure but I hope no one else does it one day they're good to well, there's buy now, pay later for airfares now too. So I suppose there's an essence sort of motivation. Isn't yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. And um, I mean, I I think I'm going to ask you the question anyway in terms of best and worst uh, moments on that journey. Yeah. Uh, worst in day four when you're describing or something else? No, worst was I flipped the boat end over end. So what's called pitch pulled on day 36. It yeah. was um, 60 knots of wind. Um, 10 o'clock at night, totally gnarly, out of control, um, and there's not much you could do about it apart from hold on. So you go into your cabin, tie everything down on the boat, and um, and it sounds like a 747 taking off. The wind, the waves, it's, it's pretty gnarly. Um, felt the boat get picked up by a wave, and I surfed down the face of it and buried the nose of the boat in the bottom of that particular wave, and that it, it was like a slow flip, so it wasn't overly violent. The boat dug in and then slowly flipped, sort of rolled over end over end and the battery, which was um, probably about 10 or 15 kilos, this battery landed on my face. So that was a bit bit of an ouch. Um, but also I was upside down. The boat was designed to self-rise and so it should have just popped back up, but it didn't for some reason. And so I still you remember. Talk to the boat builder. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I've, there's less than an accountability. If you built the boat and you do the rowing, there's, there's not many fingers you can point. <laughs> Um, and so I was upside down, and then um, the way the life raft was tied to the deck of the boat held the boat upside down, um, and so I just stayed there. And I vividly remember looking at the cabin hatch, and I was underwater, and it was totally underwater. But there's not water coming in. <laughs> no, we got an air pocket. No, a little air pocket. We were sitting, in, I was sitting inside of, and it's a sealed cabin, so. I was there, and I was like, "Holy, holy shit! This doesn't really get any worse." Yeah, <laughs> I am upside down, and. Um, I wasn't panicking because I, I knew that this is what it was designed for and it's going to be okay and you know, I knew that it was going to hold together. Um, but I was like, well, this is quite an unusual scenario. And there was more about, right, what do I need to do now to get the boat upright and so I can keep right and and go, go at it again. And so eventually I positioned my body in the cabin to start rocking the boat from side to side and, um, and eventually popped the boat back up. And then so... What had happened when the boat inverted is um, some of the emergency beacons had automatically triggered. And so it wasn't the big major EPIRB one, thankfully. It was this um, uh, one actually supplied by a New Zealand company called Track Plus, um, which inverted and just set off a beacon to a website. Um, and part of that, the website um, immediately started flashing emergency beacon. And the funny part of the story is TV3 saw that. And then the TV3 reporters called my mum. <laughs> So, and they're like, what do you think? Uh, Sean's set off his emergency beacon. You know, he's in trouble. And mum was like, well, I didn't know about this. So, so it was quite he's fun. Yeah. Right at the moment. Um, and so this story is a little bit longer, but the boat popped back up again. I was fine. Lost some oars, lost some stuff off the deck and all that kind of stuff. And then um, all the emotion caught up with me the next morning and oh, and the, the sea had calmed right down. And I was sitting there bawling my eyes up, just going, fuck, that was intense. That was really bad. Um this is, and I'm right in the middle. There's nothing I can do, and it's awful. And so I called my dad, and then, um, and I was kind of sobbing and a little bit emotional. And I was like, "Yeah, this is bloody terrible. What's going? This is so awful, awful. It's terrible." And then dad goes, "Fuck up." <laughs> he goes, "Fuck up." And I was like, "Oh, okay, far out." I was kind of hoping for a bit of emotional support there. And he goes, "Look around you," and I was like, "Okay." 
And he goes, have you got a seat? And I was like, yes. And he goes, have you got oars? And I go, yes. And he goes, well, what the fuck are you doing talking to me? <laughs> and then he hung up. And, um, and talk about um, right message at the right time. You know, I think he, he had taught um, sea survival in the Navy for 20 years. And so he knew, I think, um, and I was so lucky to have that conversation. He knew the best thing Sean could do is get rowing, get some progress and get towards New Zealand. No one can rescue him in the middle. Nothing's going to change for his benefit, apart, you know, um, unless he starts rowing really hard. And so, yeah, that was that was probably the worst part. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, and then and then flipping to the to the to the brighter bluer sky side. Oh, brighter bluer! I think it was the moments of um, uh, the moments of realization of what a spectacular opportunity I was having, and what an amazing experience I was having. And they they were, you know, they were pretty frequent. You know, the sea might be totally flat one morning. You get out and you hear a whale, and you're like, wow, this is. You know, I'm 24. I'm in the middle of the Tasman. Um, what what an adventure this is! There aren't many bigger adventures, and so kind of when those little moments hit me, I was like, yeah, you should be pretty proud of yourself. You got here. You know, you're in the middle. You're you're in the arena. You're going for it. And um, so those combination of all those moments as they happened along the way were definitely the the uh, moments I sort of reflect on and pretty pretty proud of. Still, I'm still amazed. Just just even. Yeah, and, and even more amazed just hearing he kind of take some some stories out of it. It's just a, it's just a phenomenal achievement. Um, when are you doing it again? <laughs> oh yeah, look, I get asked that quite a lot. You know, would you do it again? And am I doing it again? Uh, to me, the box is definitely ticked. <laughs> definitely, I've ticked that box. There's no there's no appetite there. Um, I've probably gotten too too comfortable with the finest things in life. I like my beer. <laughs> I like a cold beer. Um, I like I like hanging out with my family and say, so, isn't that just a bigger boat? Yeah, <laughs> well, they can do the rowing, I think, as well. So, no, but no, no big appetite. But 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 in terms of was it worth it and would I do it again? Um, yes, yes, same. Bloody awesome. Um, moving into you know this world that um, that we both traverse, and and I think you give back a lot to the ecosystem as well. Um, a sounder, you know, serial founder. Um, what, you know, you've done this a few times. What are your main sort of carryovers in terms of things that you build on each time uh, you do this? Yeah, it's um, what are my biggest les- what are my biggest lessons? It's a, it's a hard one because there's always so many, and you know, I the wonderful path of why I choose this life of constantly starting new startups and working with startups is you get uppercuts constantly and you think you know things and you totally you know get shown a whole new thing regularly technology changes and so um it's basically like attending the university of the ship (laughs) absolutely oh it is hard and it's brutal and um yeah and i thought rona tassel was hard but being a being a founder and and trying to help other founders with the right advice which is going to be impactful is incredibly hard and, and wonderfully humiliating um, and keeps you very grounded. Um, so biggest thing for me, biggest things I learned is remain coachable constantly, that you can learn from so many people um, and making sure that you drop your guard enough that people will give you the advice that you need to hear. I think a lot of the time, uh, and you see it in the corporate world all the time, that they just are so guarded and so um, you know, strong in their view about ways of doing things, they actually just miss the boat entirely as to what matters, um, and people are too scared to give them that feedback. And so I think trying to be appro- continuously being open and approachable, um, trying to make sure people want to give you advice and want 
see you succeed by acknowledging the input they're giving to you as well. I think it's really helps you make, make helps you avoid huge mistakes regularly. Um, sometimes it's really hard to listen to some of, <laughs> some of that feedback because it could be quite damning on your own personal capability or, or um, what you've done or what you've invested in or what you've invested other people's money in as well. And so it's, um, um, I think, remaining coachable and being able to move very quickly when you can acknowledge that other advice is right as well um, to, to act upon it. So one would be one would be coachability, remaining open to being coached. Um, you know, Olympic athletes don't get there by themselves. Neither can founders, right? No one can no one yeah. can win by themselves. Um, you, you need a team of good people. Um, the other the other big thing is there's a there's a balance of, and I actually don't have an answer to this at all. But there's a balance of um, of confidence and arrogance um yeah. and it's trying to figure out what, where that line is um and and what that line is because you will never build a great startup unless you're confident that of its success and then you've got to walk this line of humility confidence and 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 some what can be perceived as arrogance as well because you believe in it so much and you need to convince other people to invest money into it as well and you've got to have um you're not going to be successful at that unless you, you know, unless you do have that confidence. But then you've got to be told and listen to watch as well quite regularly what you need to shift in that particular startup or seed. And I guess it's um, I've typically played in seed and pre-seed, and I think that that's um, very characteristic of that space. Now, later on, it shifts because you do have data and metrics of success, and you do know what repeatable systems and processes work. But for me, um, it's those couple of things which I, I struggle with, but are also I think I can do pretty well now and I've learned sort of how to walk those lines. I guess a couple of things there. I mean, that psychological safety you're talking about is yes. something that's at least much more talked about. You know, are you really having yes. an open conversation with people versus, you know, walls and defensive mechanisms, as you say? But, um, you know, and everybody usually well-meaning wants to give you their perspective, right? Yes. But I yeah. think that's the big challenge is really sifting in your own head between the perspective, which is yeah. it's valued, it is what it is, but yes. the advice that's actually actionable. Yes, yeah, so totally. How, how, how do you rationalise Well, I, that's really it. So we, before this, I had a, a two-hour session um, with an incredible operator and we've got this new business symphony and he was a, a, a global payments expert incredibly, but um, you've always got, and had a whole lot of different opinions about stuff which came from really robust experience and was awesome. What you've got to always balance as a founder is whether people like it or not, you generally know your business better than any of them mm. and you've had more domain, or it depends on what stage you're at, but you've more likely had a lot more domain exposure in trying to sell it to the different stakeholders along the way. And so you will always get multiple people coming in with those opinions, with those uh, helpful bits of advice um, and I think you've got to be careful in how you build the context with those people prior to those meetings about where you want advice and where you want that help because they can come in and lob grenades really quickly and totally fuck your strategy or, or direction. And often unintentionally. Yeah, and unintentionally, and you sit back and there's a panic attack. And so um, of, oh, my gosh, we're doing things totally wrong, and um, and I think a lot of people will pivot and get defocused by those scenarios or those pieces of feedback due to the caliber of the person giving that bit of feedback and so it's always when you are taking feedback i think it's important you inform and educate that person as much as they are able to 
on where you want the advice and your journey to date. Um, and I've, you know, I, as a founder of quite a few businesses over the years, I've learned that I can tolerate that feedback and know and sift and sort the feedback and information where it's relevant and where it's not. And I suppose that's the confidence aspect you've got to be able to use to go, yep, he's got that view because he hasn't been or she hasn't been on this journey yet. Um, and we know we've knocked on that door, we've opened that door, we've been down that rabbit hole and it's not actually an option, but but I, I want to validate what they're just saying and that could have been a year or something ago. So that's always a tricky one. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> and, and then I'm going to sort of um, go wandering out in the, in the bullseye of, of starting stuff and talk about your people. Yes, and yeah. the management and leadership of them. Yeah, you know your thoughts on how you do that, as well as um, curate, manage whatever you describe it as the feedback that's getting. And you know, it's one thing for you to build your own yeah. ability to process that and deal with it, but yeah. you know, talk to us about your your sort of learnings and now kind of key key guidelines and rules around leadership and management. Yeah, funny that. Yeah, so that so on that one on that topic. You've got to be careful how much you expose your team and and personally get to know your team and what they are able to handle as well. Some, um, as an example, some people like pure structure and safety, and they want that structure and the safety, and that's where they perform, that's where they're happy, and that's where they you will get the most out of them. When you give them a task, um, they're not they're not coin operated; they can still think for themselves, but they cannot tolerate insecurity or strategy or or that the business might not work or that what they're working on might not be successful. They just need the structure and, and to follow that. Um, and so when you bring in external people who have a variety of strong opinions um, and they can absolutely destroy that person for a couple of weeks because, um, and I know we're, we're going to talk about sort of anti-fragile, but they don't deal with the anti-fragile world very well. The chaos, the shifts in direction, the pivots, they want structure, they want repeatable processes, and that's when they're going to dominate and win. So um, when I when I look at building and, and managing my teams, I think I look at culture and phase of the business. So culturally, what kind of person is that person? What can they tolerate and where have they been prior? So at the stage of um, the symphony business, which we're running at the moment, lots of change, lots of challenge, lots of high-tension conversations, lots of pressure. We're, we're early stage, we're finding product market fit, um, moving fast, quick decisions, um, and a and lot, um, lot of sort of walls to bust through. And, you know, I love that. I absolutely love that challenge and thriving. And my challenge as a CEO of that business is to identify the right people who also love that challenge and then putting behind those people um, the people who love the safety and security and systems and the, the, the grafters that get a whole lot done. So it's really making sure that you're putting the right people into the right places that can tolerate the various stages of that business and then moving those people on really quickly once you evolve too because a, a business like uh, Symphony, which is you know uh, a year old, is rapidly changing, right? And so we don't necessarily know the organisational structure and who are the right people at the right time and the right spots to scale that business to where it's going to land. So it's one of these things where um, you've always got to be ready to chop and change. You've always got to be ready to um, be nimble in your approach. Um, and uh, I guess fundamentally, I think at this stage, one thing I'd say is a lot of it is more values-driven than, than, than skill set because um I think we're all grafting and chopping and changing that us working as a team to deliver an outcome for customers is priority number one. 
um, and that takes a whole lot of um, a whole lot of good cultural stuff over and top over and above um, actual uh, capability. I think of of separate skill sets from time to time. You mentioned values. I mean, yeah. what what are, what are your core values? Um, well, core values. Um, look, I think solutions orientated is definitely um, my biggest one. That you know, make sure that when we're looking at everything, we never approach it with a well. There's nothing we can do, mm. right? It is always well. Where's the solution? And there is always a solution, right? There is always a path forward. Um, and, and definitely, if I'm ever showing up with a um, saying, well, we're done, you know, then I need an uppercut, right? Because <laughs> like, I just, so I think for me, absolutely solutions orientated, that there's a path and there's a there's a conversation to be had, whether it's post an argument, whether it's going into a negotiation or whether it's an employment dispute or an opportunity, there is always a way forward. Um, positivity, definitely. I think um, you've got to remind yourself of that all the time. Um I think it's a choice. You wake up and you are going to be an arsehole to that day or you're going to actively go, no, actually, I'm going to try and drive a, a positive attitude to the team or the organisation I'm working with that day. Um, and, and perseverance, I think that's definitely so if I could summarise what, what I think uh, I remind myself of most days, it's you know, stay positive, persevere and be solutions orientated. And if I can keep delivering that, then the outcomes will take care of themselves. Nice, <clears throat> nice. We're going to um, we're going to move into sort of a section which I really want to get your views on, given uh, your background and living in the you know the, the hotbed of entrepreneurialism. At one time, I'd argue it's no longer that sort mm. of valley. Mm. You know, you're based in San Francisco, um, moving that business out, um, and just talk about global from New Zealand. But before that, um, give us the elevator pitch for Symphony. Oh, Symphony, awesome. Well, look, we're um, we're an insurance payments platform primarily so when you look at insurance it's a eight trillion dollar market in terms of how many premiums the world pays every single year and those payments come in all different ways in different shapes and sizes people pay by credit card direct debit premium funding bank transfers all sorts of different ways and it's insurance is sold in all sorts of different ways as well and so what symphony does is symphony acts as the collector of all those different payments no matter how a customer or a small business is paying for their insurance ingests all those payments into an orchestration system which basically matches the person or the client to the policy to the payment reconciles all of that information and pushes it up into a dashboard and a whole lot of easily to digest uh, reports and those. so other systems like zero operating systems can ingest it all so it makes paying really easy and really transparent for customers full digital experience it makes managing hundreds of thousands of customers really really easy for insurance and their sellers of insurance and overall collectively it removed a ton of opex from the businesses um, who sell insurance as well so better experience for the buyer better experience for the seller um the best possible customer experience at the lowest possible operating costs with automation running through everything. And, and there, my friends and listeners, don't know how many there are, hopefully Double Figures uh, is a masterclass in pitching. <laughs> Thanks. Nice. Hopefully. So clearly a global problem. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Trillions of dollars at stake. Yes. How did you, how did you, you know, you, you, you exited uh, Genoa Pay for yes. Latitude. Talk us through, you know, at a high level, the, the, this is the problem I want to solve next. 
I think um, where it started was I actually invested in a business called Quashed, which is a, a policy management platform. And I said I'd do a white paper for that particular business. I sit on the board of, you know, the opportunity and payments for that particular business. What I realised very quickly is, one, there was a huge gap, and two, um, that it was a massive, massive business in itself, and you couldn't, there wasn't a solution that they could plug into. And so the entrepreneur and Sean basically said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll build it. Um, and that's going to be, you know, that's going to be amazing and that should be a really good opportunity. I didn't quite comprehend, you know, I think that's that, that flash in the pan type of, well, I'm going to do that, it's going to be a piece of cake, I'll it's going to be simple. Testament, yeah. yeah, I'll just, just go and do that and I'm sure we can we can build something spectacular and huge and quick. Um, and so I started researching and what I suppose I had the luxury of is um, I'd finished at Latitude, um, COVID had hit, so I had a huge amount of time um, and really I just thought I'd take a year off and hang out with the kids um, and so I started researching and researching insurance, insurance distribution, insurance payments, um, how it works, the, the customer flows, the journeys and everything and was just dumbfounded with how antiquated, how slow, what an awful experience it was as a whole and where I just thought we had the domain expertise across what we had done previously with the Genoa Pay business um, to to execute on a far better global solution, and the market was huge. And so, I thought if I'm going to dedicate my the next 15 years of my life to creating something valuable, it had the market size, we had the domain expertise, and um, we felt we could actually deliver something 10 times better than that was at play. And so that was the combination of. Um, things that came together to go, yep, let's go raise some money, let's go let's go hard and let's do it again. Oh, cool. I'll come back to that, raising mm-hmm. some money. So, you know, getting to this globality I, I, in a bit of a, um, a bit of a quick, quick fire round, I've got three phrases I'm interested in your kind of cool. reaction and comment, whatever way you, you, you want to phrase it, and I've got my own views on them as well. But, you know, uh, the one we hear a lot around New Zealand ecosystem, punching above our weight. Oh, sorry, that's a big pause, isn't it? Punching above our weight. Um, yes, and we need to believe that we can a lot more. Innovation nation. Not as good as we think we are. And pure New Zealand. Uh, great to trade off, but maybe not true. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's some very, some very significant crossovers there, and I, and I just, I just kind of set it up for this piece around um, thinking about how to get some nuggets from you, which you've already, you know, very generously contributed around this globality, because I think it is essential for us as a country yeah. and and for an entrepreneur, you know. The yeah. insurance market in New Zealand would be what, not even a percentage of no, that? No, no, it's not. And yeah, absolutely. We need to travel. And you know, the wonderful part is you know, planes are working again. And so get on them, get overseas, expose yourself to it. Yeah. Well, that, and, and I just, if you can expand on that a bit, because it's my, you know, my line on this is just, you know, what is the advice you'd give somebody going global from New Zealand based on your experience? Yeah, cool. Never be afraid to go niche. Um, New Zealand, New Zealanders and, Businesses in New Zealand typically say yes to everything because we have to due to market size. Uh, we we generally hate our competitors because we're all fighting for such a small piece of the pie, and uh, and that can be quite destroying in terms of your global opportunity. And so, when you look at markets, I think now as an entrepreneur who has built 
sort of two businesses off uh, overseas, I definitely try and be as niche as I possibly can into a particular sector. Um, look at the global opportunity of that niche and, and think of it as how do we be the best in the world at you know making shoe eyelets or whatever it is, right? Just get as niche as you possibly can yep. to build features in and around and defendable capability in and around that niche domain expertise. And so for me, as um, and I look at look at debit success as an example. Um, when we went to uh, when we went to the US, we went um, and we were a gym membership billing platform. It was um, where do we go? How are we going to win? Is it price differentiation or niche? What are we going to do? And in New Zealand, we were trying to do insurance payments, gym membership payments, um, beauty payments, childcare payments, absolutely, and trying to provide some software because you had to. Yeah, we had to to get the volume and to to and and look to be fair, we provided a pretty good solution into those spaces as well, which was good, but it wasn't globally scalable. And we went to California and we're based in San Francisco and we're going to sell everyone. Again, we're going to go for it. We're going to absolutely go for it. And huge amount of money going into that. And ultimately, the go everywhere, be everything for everyone strategy didn't work. And so... So just just riffing on that, just for clarity, this company's got a ton of capital to put behind it. Yes, yeah, good point. And you went kind of wide and still realised that it's not the way. Yeah, we, you know, ultimately we had as much money as we needed to try and win in some ways. And we went wide and really you never became good at anything. Right. Um, And you were kind of okay at lots, but you're never good at anything. And so what that opens the door to is, um, as an entrepreneur now with a little bit more experience, I look at that and I go, I would look at that big business and I would find who they're doing the worst job for and I would rebrand a website and I would become, you know, I don't know what you'd call it, maybe beauty membership billing systems right. or whatever it might be, right? Yeah. And then you'd go and you'd smash a beauty therapy and then, you'd, and then you'd kind of geographically niche as well. And especially for the States, I think that's quite important as the States speak. And so you go, well, let's look at California. Then you realise California is the sixth biggest economy in the world. And you go, well, actually, not even really a country, is it? No. From an export point of view. It's, <laughs> no. it's, it's, yeah. it's a whole lot of small markets. It is a whole well, lot of small markets. A whole lot of large markets. Yeah. Right. You know, they are quite different. If you win, if you win San Francisco, you're happy. You know, it's still a, it's still bigger than you could probably ever be in New Zealand. And so had you sold for success locally? Yes. Yeah. So what were the big differences? I mean, obviously, you're the new... Yeah, the new kid on the block to get there and yes. the first boots on the ground for debit success. Yes, talk us through the, the the big noticeable differences, I guess, culturally and commercially about you know jumping into that market in the front end. Yeah, cool. So it's un- Okay, so in New Zealand, you go and you sell something. You are everything to that buyer. So you're the account manager, you're the salesperson. Generally, you're the delivery of that product or that solution, and generally, you're you know the, you're the ongoing account executive to drive more success. You are you are the life cycle of, of that sale. Generally, certainly in the states, the fragmentation of the sales process, account management, onboarding, and ongoing customer success is fragmented out, and so it's quite unusual. Uh, and sometimes this was all for benefit that you own the whole life cycle. And so because it's so big, they have they segment out their funnel quite a lot more in the phases of that growth funnel and who has to do what. And so what you find or what I certainly found is we were under-equipped for the amount of resource and uh, 
needed to serve the buyer at each of those phases in the funnel and compared to compared to New Zealand. Right. Yeah. So you, you arrive in, in the US and you're like, well, you, where's, the, where's the account executive? Where's the where's the onboarding team? Where's all this kind of stuff? And when we started, it's like, oh, it's just me uh, and I'm doing everything. And then for the smaller sales, fine, that's okay. They found it unusual, but it was it was learning that uh, highly repeatable, highly scalable sales systems require you to break down that sales cycle into its components and and learn to pass that on at scale. And that's where you can start dealing with, you know, 100 sales leads a day and moving them down the funnel. And that's the, sort of the hyper-growth model as well. So that was my, yeah, my one learning is setting up for that hyper-growth, even if it starts with four people, breaking it down to that. And then then at least you've got the model to scale that up to 50, which was what we did with Genalpa and uh, Buy Now, Pay Later. Yeah, I'm going to ask another question around that. Is um, that, that uh, just comes to mind around that? I'm spending a lot of time personally. You know, we've we've sort of wrapped Kiwi Landing Pad Territory three yes, up in its yeah. um, in its former sort of view of trying to help everybody, top and bottom of funnel. And yes. what I mean by that is, you know, people listening to inspirational perspectives to get going yes. through to the stuff that I personally enjoy, which is you know sitting with the sort of founders who are really getting through the hoops. Yes. So we've cut that out, and then when I'm now down at that founder through the hoops, um, my passion is the sales side of things. Yes. And, and so a couple of questions for you just to put, you know, that really useful um, perspective and contrast too. I'm a founder. Um, you know, you've clearly demonstrated with the, with the wonderful radio example, you've got that sales background early on. I'm a technical founder. I'm, I'm able to fly my way through, you know, most of the technical problems, the coding and so forth. I'm now, you know, starting to get some traction around the problem I'm solving. What would your advice be um, being that first salesperson as a non-salesperson or not from that background? And then I think the, the, the bigger gap, which is how to manage another resource, you know, mm-hmm. as the founder, essentially as the sales manager at a small organisation. So, you know, how do I, where do I go to be, you know, move from kind of Uber Coder to to having to sell my solution that I'm coding, and then how do I kind of move on to actually making sure I'm getting something out of you know the first salesperson or somebody who's going to do it? It's not me. Yeah. So so this is bringing on a this is a technical founder bringing on their first sales. Yeah. I mean, reason you know, it's totally wrong. They generally got you know, you yeah. can name a whole bunch of people yes. who come from that background. You watch them just. Yeah, quickly, you know, one of their skill sets is quickly assimilating knowledge. Yes, yeah. And can sell in. Yes. But they only go so far. Yes, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so, you know, what are your thoughts around that piece? And then, like, how do you – because you, know, you definitely get kudos. You're not going to get as the first salesperson when yes. you're the founder. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The field. Yes, yeah. And, and I think there's, a, there's definitely people telling me, hey, John, we'd love to, you know, hear more perspectives and see more resources about just how – yeah, the sort of things, the key things, because you can go and Google, you know, how to be a sales manager. Yeah. But what in your mind are the key things that you look for in that, you know, how, how am I making sure I'm getting value out of it for yourself? It's, 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 this is, yeah, it's interesting because I think this also comes down to budget yeah. as well, big time, is there's different ways to approach. And the approach I talked about before, fragmenting it out, is not a cheap approach. Yeah. Right? And that's, and it's um, you burn a lot of cash doing that and you, you need – to have kind of almost gone on a journey of understanding everyone's role design at, at before you get to that point. Um, 
So how do you approach it? I can I can only really talk from the startups I've been involved with and what I've seen work and what I've seen catastrophically fail. Yeah. The best outcome I've ever had was a um he won't mind me naming him, a guy called um Matt Nair in Melbourne. And we um he was a very systems orientated salesperson. Mm. And so he was an operator. It was a real, here's a system, this is what you follow, here are the email templates, this is how you send those, and this is how you respond to them. And as long as you do this 150 times, 27 outcomes are going to happen, and they're probably going to be good, right? So do this, and I'm going to crack the whip and get this done. I, I love that approach because you can measure it, you can manage it, and it's money in, money out type of approach. Uh, it can be quite brutal, um, and it is very impersonable, um, and... Um, and, you know, you get a lot of cheer of staff doing that as well. So, but from a single founder point of view, I think if you can find a person that understands that sales is a system, growth is a system of repeatable steps and putting the right systems in place um, and right content, right uh, email templates, right nurture journey, all that sort of stuff, it is a data-driven system of of inputs and outputs. And so I'm convinced of that. And so when I'm giving advice to founders, it is find someone that acknowledges the science of sales as well as there is an element of art that they have and their ability to build rapport is there. Now, these people are not easy to find (laughs) at all. Um, And there is no shortage of salespeople that will sell their ability to you. Which is also really bloody hard. And usually the ones that sell it the best are the ones that have had the most practice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And sometimes they are just fucking terrible salespeople <laughs> who you need to fire as quickly as possible, right? And so so reading the bullshit of salespeople is is one of the hardest things. And you know, I'm a salesperson and yeah, I'm full of shit sometimes, <laughs> you know. So it's um so getting the right ones that understand that early stage, like you you need you are learning still. Right. And so they're going to be, they're going to be one of your best product influencers as well, that sales questions, because they're going to go out and they're going to sell, sell the world if they're any good. And that's going to drive product direction too, in some ways, shape or form. And so I think, um, it's a, it's a bloody hard thing to do because they go out and they sell all the time. They bring back, oh, by the way, they ask for this feature. Can we do it? Well, that's what we need to win the deal. Yeah. And so they've got to acknowledge a couple of things. One, that, the dev teams in software can only deliver so much. And if you oversell, then that is just as bad as not selling at all because they fuck the, the whole system. And then so they can't do that. And my dev team will laugh when they hear me explain <laughs> that. And um, <laughs> in some ways, you've also got to, um, you've also, they've also got to be prepared to do the admin work to set up those systems and processes because that's what you learn from. And if they keep doing what they're doing and it's continually failing and you're not measuring it or not tracking it, well, you're going to continue to fail and you're not going to know why to be able to identify where the gaps are. So with um, programs like HubSpot and whatever else you're going to use, you can map the whole customer journey and communication flows and everything and you can really drill down to the science and then and then the art will take care of itself um, with, with people being able to build rapport and, and, and connections and network, et cetera, et cetera. So... Um, I've probably given you the hugely long-winded answer. No, no, and, and you know, it's well worth listening to. Um, you know, it makes perfect sense. And I think I'd come back to, because I think a lot of people, when they do have the luxury of that, you know, 
traction or capital, whatever it is, to mm. get a sales team beyond themselves. Yes. But you you mentioned it earlier, um, uh, I think quite poignantly and, and you know, quite specifically, that coachability. Yeah. In terms of somebody you're taking on being able to take yes. feedback constructively. Yes. Because the, you know, the system is 100%, but you're constantly reviewing and refining it too. Yeah. Right? Yeah, totally. Always refining, always shifting, changing. New content comes out. How is that responding? It's a, it's an evolving, evolving beast. And you know, in New Zealand, you might get a great um, startup business with three hustlers, right? Who are just awesome, an awesome team. Who are they smashing it? And they're going out all the time. They're winning lots of deals, and it's yeah. amazing. But then you've kind of got to pause them all and put the systems in behind them and see how you scale that because three is not enough. You're going to need to build a billion-dollar business. You're going to need 43 or 403 of these types of people. And so without the systems, you'll never make that leap um, and you'll stay as the you know the, the three awesome hustlers who are, you know, I wind back the clock to the 1990s. They all get a Holden Commodore each and, and, yeah, a, yeah. and a cell phone and they're driving around New Zealand taking people to Cobble Co. And, you know, sort of that sort of stuff. So, yeah. Frank yeah. 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 Yeah, and I think that's right. And um, and I think, you know, just sort of rounding out that globality piece because um, the, the next sort of section I want to talk about is the world ahead and planning for that. But, um, you know, I think the processes about the refinement at the moment is critical because we find a lot of, I'm having these discussions pretty regularly, find a lot of companies are really starting to see weakness in their, in their sales funnel conversion. Mm. Um, and it's kind of a relatively new thing. And everything has actually been going along swimmingly to that point. But it would seem, particularly in the States, it's probably indicative of some pretty rapidly shifting priorities for the companies so that your solution, and this is where it comes down, I think I love the near EL, uh, you know, painkiller or vitamin. Yes, yeah. Suddenly what you're selling to them is actually a vitamin that they can't afford to yeah. to keep buying from the chemist warehouse. Suddenly, you know, the, the word comes from on top that you've got to find, you know, some solutions to some very different pains. Yes. And refinement and restructuring your, you know, proposition as well as your sales forces, you know, patter is pretty key to that. Oh, totally. I love that. I love that. Are you a painkiller or are you a vitamin? And who actually owns the customer? Yeah. yeah. And where are you creating value? And these are some, um, you know, as the tide has gone out, there's thousands of businesses that have been left swimming naked and that's, that's exactly why, right? They actually weren't solving that bigger problem or they hadn't, diversified across enough of the value chain to really sort of um, dig in deep enough that they couldn't be moved or they weren't sticky enough. And so, um, you know, we, we have had 10 years, we've almost had 10 years of good times, mm. right? And, and certainly um, that has softened uh, a few a few different aspects of, of business and what we are willing to do to fight to keep winning. And so it's now the time to fight and to dig in and go, you know, work harder and, you know, the, Think of the six-day work week. Maybe that's you know that becomes the norm again. And yep. yes, this is when we we've got to keep going. Um, and you've really got to ask yourself in your product set or your service set, whatever you're doing, where are the actual pain points that, and where are we really, where are we really solving problems, and where is the actual value in our business? And if there are things where you're spending money that aren't creating value or adding value, then you need to drop them. And and the people that are supporting them, you've got to lower your cost base as low as you possibly can and really dig in. And that's um, and the sooner you do that, the better. I think it mean you build a better business. Um, and so I think we're going to see a heck of a lot of that and we're going to see a heck of a lot of um, 
uh, those type of cuts. But those businesses will be better and stronger for it, and the product will be better and stronger. And that's that's you know probably what a lot of them should have done a little yep. while ago as well, right? And this is just the the moment where they have to. It is going to be painful though, isn't it? Because oh. you know valuations have been great. You know capital's been. Uh, accessible at high levels. So yeah. I say, you know, it's never, it's never easy, but it's been more accessible than it has been in, in times. So, yeah. I mean, when we're talking from a global point of view, it's ridiculous, right? Um, the paradox of Zoom yeah. telling its staff that they now must come into the office. Yes, yeah. Having sold, you know, the idea that, you know, you don't need that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it it's there kind is. of the classic example of that transition around, yes, but productivity, culture, you know, yeah. a whole lot of things that have been left a little bit uh, with the tight out. Yeah. Um, oh, mate, I love, I love being back in the office. I'm a big believer in the office. That's interesting. And um, How many in your team now? Uh, seven of us now yeah. on the team. Yeah. Um, and look, we do Monday, Wednesday, Friday in the office, Tuesday, Thursday at home. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I, I understand and I love flexibility, but I also think we are doing the young people in our organisations a lot of harm we're not teaching them. They're not having the water cooler conversations. Yeah. They're not building uh, routine into their lives, which is going to set them up to win, I don't think. And so um, the coaching, the sharing screens when you're coding, the, um, right, come have a chat with me when I teach you how to sell something. Or here's what our customers actually need. I'm going to do it for you on the whiteboard. Yeah. Um, I, I think so much of that is so valuable. And osmosis is a real thing. Um, and I think, you know, there's... Um, a lot of learning, which a lot of people are missing out on, which I, um, you know, I love. And you know, I remember, I, I've always been a guy who loves coming to work. You know, I love the the second family of work. You know, and more people to share. I think you with. were the instigator of the landing pad wine. <laughs> yeah. Friday. Oh, no, you could. The landing pad was the best because they kind of weren't colleagues; they were mates. And so, <laughs> it was, uh, the Kiwi landing pad was fabulous for that because then you when you networked again. So. Um, look, if I, if I could create a hashtag, it'd be 2024 in the office. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> because I just think it's so important um, for everything. But it's good for everybody to hear, mate, because, you know, yeah. even with a small team, you know, yeah. this is not a big company issue. No. I mean, I'd argue it's actually more poignant, especially the osmosis piece yes. around small, yeah. evolving team. Because you, your culture is still evolving too, right? Yeah. and But I'm... I'm humble in that it can work as well, and I I don't I don't like it personally. Yeah. I want to be in the office, but yeah. um, uh, Ryan from Timely he built that business pretty much everyone was remote. Yeah. You know, he built that whole business, mate. Had a fantastic exit, and yeah. um, and it sort of worked. And I don't know what that secret ingredient was, mm. um, but Friday afternoon beers would have been a pretty <laughs> must have been pretty shit. <laughs> I remember having a few of those in COVID, you know, with people with wine glasses in their hands on Zoom. It's just not the same. No. So, I, I, hashtag 2024 in the office. Hey, so just at a high level, because, I mean, you make a good point about um, a company, you know, like there's, there are always exceptions, right? We're, we're really um, not trying to boil down to the ultimate no. you know, yeah. playbook. But um, in terms of being in that founder position, early, mid, late, whatever stage, you know, keeping it to sort of the core principles, planning ahead in the current environment. What are your, what are your thoughts and perspectives to people out there? Um, I'm, I'm very fiduciary aware. I know the money will run out unless we get revenue. And so that, that covers the cost. So for, for me, I think, um, you know, make everyone aware that every dollar counts and every dollar of revenue is really hard to get and, and very easy to lose. So that, um, you can get a. I can get 
I can get, but everyone can get a bit maniacal about that, which can be a bit bad for motivation and, and morale. But it's it's incredibly important to the overall success. If you run lean and build great systems and processes and focus on revenue, then you're going to have a great business, and everyone's going to have a job. If you don't, then not everyone's going to have a job, and the business might not work. So I think for me, looking forward, I'm constantly looking at the most affordable way for us to execute on things, which is you know product lead growth. Um, you know, getting case studies, using those, you know, trying to trying to keep the above the line marketing spend as low as possible and just doing things which will help your business grow without spending too much money. I guess that's one thing. Um secondly, it's it's constantly looking for that efficiency rather than hiring five can your engineers build for something as well. So it's looking to spend a little bit of money up front to build more automation throughout your systems and processes. Um Another thing which always catching a lot of founders out, um, and it may be simple, there are a lot of big organizations that have sold freemium to get you on the hook. Yeah. And then all of a sudden in year three, um, um, you get smashed with some massive AWS bills or Azure bills, um, and where you get smashed with some huge HubSpot bills. And you've got to be really careful because that kills people, right? That just absolutely all of a sudden you're getting a, your cloud structure and how you've designed your software is now costing you thirty thousand bucks a month. Well, there's also the aspect of loans and grants too, particularly yeah. in the New Zealand environment. Yes. So yeah. I think, you know, we've seen a lot of founders challenged by that where plans have not gone in line with, you know, their forecasts and expectations. When, yeah. When do they ever do? Totally. Um, and now some of the, you know, quite um, expensive support is catching yeah. up because people are wanting their loans to start being repaid or, yeah. their, you know, the grant, yes. the grant, you know, yeah. ability to qualify is left or something. Um, one other important thing, which I think, I'd really like to say to all founders, and I think it's one thing I've learned the most, is your relationship building with shareholders and future investors never, ever stops. Yeah. And that that is should be 20% at a minimum of your job every week is making sure you are continuing to connect with shareholders and future investors. You should never arrive at a capital raise wondering who you're going to talk to mm. and where the money is going to come from. Um, it should always be, here's a list of 100 and we're ready to go. And I've been talking to 65 of that 100 um, on and off for the last few years. Just giving them a bit of a heads up. A little heads up, yeah. building rapport. Yeah. People aren't going to suddenly give you money as a VC. VC is not going to take a phone call. You're not going to do a pitch and all of a sudden you're going to get their money. It's it's a process. It's a relationship building you are going into business with these people and they need to know you and trust you and that takes time. And so it's not a not a lolly shot. You don't go and suddenly just um, hand over your pitch deck and get the cash out. It is a deep uh, partnership and um, the more they know about your business, um, you know, slightly I, I think the better outcome is going to be for you in terms of getting capital from them. So I think that's one of the biggest lessons I've ever had is I spend so much time now telling people about what we do what we're trying to do and why it's really hard, but why the prize is really good. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm off to Las Vegas at the end of this month and I'm meeting with 12 venture capital funds from the US. I'm not raising money for maybe two more years, but I'm just going to meet with them, tell them what I'm doing. I want to build the relationship. When they come to New Zealand, I'm buying them beers and um, you know, showing them Waiheke Island if I can. You know, it's it's that's always going. We, we've lost the medium of, of video in this, um, possibly wrongly, but. I'm smiling because, uh, you know, Las Vegas, the oh. place to meet is there was a guy who came here with Pandora. 
Oh, brilliant. Uh, and, 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 you know, he always tells a story which has never lost me. Yeah. You know, times were tough. No one was buying revenue wasn't cutting in. Costs were running out. They had $500 left. And it was either keep going or go to Vegas and put everything on red. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, 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 I'm not going to put it all on no, red. No, yeah, no, but it's, uh, Vegas for a different yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but no, look, so the, the, the capital raising never ever stops, right? And it's, it's part of your job you um is to, is to sell the viability of you know of, of your business moving forward and that that is something i've learned um yeah it's been very helpful mate we've just rolled along it's been an hour oh good good um well, good good because you're sick of it or <laughs> no no i didn't no, yeah good i'm done no no <laughs> no, no I, I didn't even realize oh that's cool i had three more awesome. um three more facets to cover with you that we talked about in terms of what we wanted to to talk about uh, between us, um, and I'll you know I'll preface them and then dive into them quickly each one. But you know one was this imposter syndrome. We talked yeah. a little bit about that. Um, the original context to that was linked into what I've talked with um, some other of my guests before about, which is women in leadership, women and leadership, women in leadership, both kind of covered, and then um, just wellness in general, mm-hmm. um, mental, physical, otherwise, which I think would be a great place to. To end up on based um, uh, based on what we've chatted about today, but imposter syndrome. Yeah, it's a um, imposter syndrome. I think it's it's a real it's a real interesting one for me. I've never been afraid of being wrong <laughs> and, and being and, and learning from where I was wrong. But um, and I've, I suppose um, you know maybe well, I can rub some people up the wrong way as I probably. Probably talk too quickly sometimes. I often um, get described as cantankerous, which I'm, <laughs> I'm sort of proud of and sort of, you know, kind of offended by it. So. Yeah, and I have learned to, to think more before I, before I talk about some things, but um, imposter syndrome is, is, is really hard. I think it is kind of just confidence about what you are involved with and your ability to add value. And, um, and yeah, I think you know, like what Raylene said, it's you know, it's just nerves sometimes. You know, if I normal say, nerves, that yeah, those who haven't watched it, so normal nerves, normal nerves. If I say something wrong, people are going to think I'm a bit of a dick or I, I'm going to discredit my own capability yeah. through through them interpreting what I've said as being I'm, I'm a muppet or whatever it might be. And, um, I, I think I've, maybe I just haven't put myself in you know, out there too much in situations where, um, I don't have enough domain knowledge on some particular things but um certainly i'm never afraid to be wrong and i ask tons of stupid questions and i am regularly wrong and i'm not phased by that because i learn quickly from that and i think in some scenarios you've got some people who leverage other people's lack of knowledge to make themselves feel better right and those kind of people are generally dicks, right? <laughs> and not that nice to be around, but we have to deal with them. And yeah. We have to work with them. And um, I'm not afraid of being wrong in front of those types of people at all. So I don't, I'm lucky I don't think I've really felt imposter syndrome yeah. too much. Yeah. I've tried to learn from those people quickly and then found out that actually they don't know very much and it's, they've got the confidence issue. But ultimately, everyone gets nerves. And it's, I think it's about putting the processes in place to try and overcome those or surround yourself with people to make you feel good that you've got the yeah, you've got the ability and skill set to to deliver. Yeah, cool. Women in leadership. I love them. The more we need more and more of my 
best boss I think uh, I've ever had was my first radio boss, Anna McGovern, and I uh, learned a huge amount. Even though you were shit. <laughs> yeah, mate, I was totally shit. And she wasn't afraid to tell me I was shit either, so it was, <laughs> it was great. But, um, but look, I think they um, uh, bring a wonderful style, I think, um, you know, we we can all learn a lot from each other, and as leaders, I really enjoy uh, surrounding myself with female leaders. Why Why do you think that it's taking so long to see that reflected in you know statistics and balance in the world? Um, it's probably a combination of different things. Like this, you know, boomers have a little bit to answer for, I suppose, and that just the way yeah. things were done has has there's been a a, a disadvantage there. I I think of my wife and her career and why uh, she, she um, um, had our awesome boys and took some time off and we talked about how and what she wanted to do with her career and her life and who was going to do what. And it is, um, it is an, it, it's a conversation um, and it is a what do you, how do you want to work and what do you want to do and and. I think it's so important that you have that with your partner too to sit back. Yeah. And go, well, what it doesn't it? feel like it happens as much as no, no. And then you kind of just naturally. And then the horrible thing is, you know, what happens all the time is the the wife goes and has the babies, or the whoever's decided in that you know, relationship to have children, they get disadvantaged because they're out of the workforce, and then the roles that they were chasing go. And it's you know, story you see times lose confidence, lose confidence, lose credibility, whatever it might be, and so building those pathways back in. Uh, are, are really important and we um uh, one business i'm a director of is glow we set one of our goals was to have the best um maternity leave package for females to come back to work um sorry not just females it's wrong and males it was uh, rolled out to have them on it yeah. and reintroduce them protect the role and keep them engaged in a particular program while they were looking after their new little ones and enjoying that time as a parent. And so it's trying to make sure we build the pathways back to help more engagement um, and make sure we keep those roles open where we can. Um, and then I think um, engaging people who are on materially whilst they are away as well helps with the confidence. Yeah. Um, but some of our employment laws are also make that hard. Like you're breaking employment law by going, well, do you want to come in for some meetings? Yeah. Or whatever it might be. And so it's you've got to be a bit careful too. That was more in Australia, right? That that particular issue. Really? Yeah. yeah, just saying, well, come in, like bring bring the little little one, whatever you want to do. Um, we'd love to have you here, but then you've got to be careful because they're like, well, no, they're off. They're off. And you can't, you know, you can't pester them. So look, it's making sure we keep the pathways open, build more pathways, continually support. Um, and just keep pushing to create opportunities and and create those roles and give those roles across when we can. Makes perfect sense to us. Yeah, well, to us. Yeah, like, yeah. Really, really not to enough people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mate, um, you know, uh, reflecting in the start year, you know, day four to day thirty six, obviously some some high pressure scenarios, and I just can't even imagine just sitting there by myself for fifty. Four days. Do you have imaginary friends? <laughs> oh, I've, I've still got a lot of imaginary friends. Uh, I wonder if I've got any friends at all. But it's um, oh no, look, I think you were. Uh, it was um, it was insanely boring. Really, a lot of it. You're just sitting there rowing for fifteen hours and and trying to think of things to think about and do and reflect and yeah, you deal with a few demons some days and don't other days, and you just sit there rowing away and um, hope for the best and try to do some surfing and talk to seagull.
Well, I, I'm, I'm glad you, you, you raised that demon side because, you know, the, the, the wellness side, I think, you know, we've – and it's tough for any business owner, right? I mean, you know, to be clear, I'm sort of focusing this on founders and it's sort of always assumed around, you know, tech businesses. But for me, I think this applies to anybody owning a business. Mm. You know, with those experiences you've had in particular, which are, you know, unique and pretty um, – pretty extraordinary opportunities for, I guess, you know, self-reflection and, and resilience and a whole bunch of things. What, you know, what are your go-tos for, for somebody listening to this um, who really knows they're not, you know, they're not quite where they should be yes. and that's affecting their, their lives and their families, the way they're presenting to themselves, yeah. you know, mentally, physically, whatever it is, you know, what are your go-tos around keeping well? I think that, the message to those people as well is, um, you know, there is a there's always a path forward, and there's always awesome outcomes just around the corner, and they they are always there, and you just got to keep going and, and and look for them. For me, it's realizing that there is a panicked, anxiety filled monster inside of everyone. Right, they're always there, and anyone who's putting on a facade that it's not there, um, it is definitely there. People are losing sleep all over the place, and it is tough, and it is a a grind, and no one has all the answers. And you know, social media is terrible at making us think that everyone's got the answers, and it's all easy, and it's all a and a meme or a small statement, you know, or something like that. It's all fucking hard. There's no quick, easy one anywhere. So, firstly, I think I've learned that. I know that. I know that everything is going to be really hard, and if it is a winner. Probably if it is an easy one, it probably really isn't one, right? Yeah. It's it's not something's hiding in there. What I tend to do now a lot more. Um, my first business, everything was on the line. Houses was on the line. Uh, huge mortgage, uh, a two year old and a three year old at home. You know, shit was hard, and I was making forty grand a year. And I, you know, if things had gone badly, it would have been you know losing the house. And so that pressure, unfortunate now, isn't there. When I was running the Tasman, that pressure certainly was there for other reasons. I was going to die, whatever it was. Um, what I learned is you don't need to focus on the whole. You don't need to solve every problem. All you need to do is make sure you are being um, functional and you are delivering value in the short term and try and solve the, the, the problems that are two inches in front of your face, right? Solve those problems and then move on to the next problem and celebrate solving that problem. If we become outcomes orientated rather than process orientated, sometimes that can really throw a spanner in the works and make you really worried about that because the outcomes will take care of themselves if you get the process and the systems working. And and I think for me, it's focusing on the short-term goals, celebrating those short-term goals. And if you're finding that too hard, make them smaller. Make them really smaller. Make it the next hour, right? Or if I was rowing, it'd be sitting up. Right, some days it was just sit up and have a mouthful of porridge, and it got that got that bad and that hard. So I think as founders and as business leaders, focus on you know the next task, getting that done as best as you can, and pass that message on to the team. Make sure you got a structure where all those small tasks are driving outcomes that help for the business, and make sure you celebrate those small tasks along the way as well. And momentum uh, builds motivation, and motivation is helpful in building morale and your own capability and feeling of capability and so i think it's the harder it is the smaller i break down the tasks and the more celebrated i do of those small tasks to get there so it's that's sort of the way i I deal with it and try and teach other people to deal with it in that way and then that kind of seems to get a bit of shit done makes a ton of sense so the the last question i had on that and then i'm going to throw it to you for, for any last thoughts but you know day four rowing the tasman thinking about just 
cracking it in by setting fire to the boat that you built. Day 36, being inverted and kind of trying to figure out, you know, you still keep going. And I think that's a very inspirational and aspirational story. But my question is, you know, what are your thoughts around the framework of, you know, and I think this faces a lot of fact. I always look about businesses being in three three distinct phases constantly. Survival, sustainable, where they've actually got to a point where, you know, they earn more than they spend, and then scalable. When, in your opinion, or what framework do you use um, to figure out that it's actually time to stop on something? Well, just in my... Um when to stop? I think. All right, John, that's a hard one. Um, it Leave is a hard, hard one to the last. <laughs> when, when do you stop? When do you give up? After I've just said, winning is just around the corner. Well, <laughs> it's no, always, but it is the it's the contract. Yeah, yeah. I think um, for me, it's a data, a real data-driven process, yeah. right? There is there's an emotional part with your if mentally. And your mental health, you can't deal with it anymore, and you're done where you're done, and you stop, right? And that's okay. That happens all the time, and you go and recharge yourself um, to, to move on with it. When you have an idea and you're, you're trying to execute on that and it hasn't worked, you haven't got the revenue, the cost base is too much, the, the, the financials don't work, I think that's when I choose to stop a few or tell people to stop as you kind of do all the maths yeah. and you and the answer is always, and you hear this a lot from founders, well, if I had 10 million more, if I was in the US and I got the proper yeah. valuation, I'd win. Yeah. I could do it. I could yeah. absolutely do it. Yeah, I, that a lot. Yeah, you know, and if I had another, yeah, this, we could definitely do it. And then I think you got to go back and go, well, firstly, fine, raise the money, right? Cool. If you can't raise the money, you're done, you know, in, in some ways. Yeah. Um, and and that's that can be as long or as short a conversation as they want. I think to get to that point, I really like to make sure we've worked through all the data, the journey to date, the team you've got, the the unit economics of that business, the product where it's at, what we need to spend to get to the next phase. And it's a combination of all of that information to go, well, we're here. How much to get to here? Do we have that money, yes or no? Is we have, do we have the trajectory or the story to get to getting to that point? If we don't, we go, okay, um, I think, you know, I think we need to stop. And I think that's that's how I approach that. It's it's never a, a sudden whirlwind of emotions or anything like that. It is a combination of a journey to that point and the data we've got at that particular point. Um, I will always hopefully be involved with businesses where the focus up to that point has been building value of some sort or building value or an asset of some sort that we could move to someone. And so I'm I'm a big one for soft landings and I know that it's sort of always trying to make sure and even with all the businesses I'm involved with, like there's people who we could sell it to at some particular point. There are people we're building value for in that value chain. So um, once we get to that point of walking away, I go, well, but what do we actually have? And if I've done my job as a director, um, or as uh, someone involved in that business, I would like to think there's three or four people we might be able to move the asset to at some point as well. So that's kind of how I approach that. Yeah, cool. Mm. cool. Mate, it's been an awesome combo. Thanks. Do you have any last, I mean, last words, just not like it's an execution or anything. <laughs> last last thought. Oh, well, this time of the year, get out and vote, you know. <laughs> Go to the All Blacks and, uh, and I, I don't know, that's... Uh, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think... Um, Oh, look, I think um, 
you know, I love founders. It's going to be hard. Keep those conversations going with with venture capital funds, with with angels. Build that investor network. You're going to need them, and we're going to have to look after them. Um, but you know, keep going and keep trying. It's um, yeah, I think it's one of the greatest privileges to be a founder, and um, and it's certainly um, it's not easy, but it's very very. Yeah, and if you're ever worried um, about what could happen, well, you can always get a job. And to me, that's the biggest risk. <laughs> right in the end point, mate. Uh, thank you, my friend. It's um, been great to chat. I hope you've all enjoyed it out there. And um, thanks so much for spending the time, Sean. Quite safe. Thanks, Tom. Awesome. Nice one, mate. It was an easy hour, eh? <laughs>